Section 25 of Tales of Old Japan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tales of Old Japan by Lord Reedsdale. Section 25 The Ghost of Sakura, Part 1. The Ghost of Sakura. The misfortunes and death of the farmer Sogoro which, although the preternatural appearances by which they are said to have been followed may raise a smile, are matters of historic notoriety with which every Japanese is familiar, furnish a forcible illustration of the relations which exist between the tenant and the lord of the soil, and of the boundless power for good or for evil exercised by the latter. It is rather remarkable that in a country where the peasant, placed as he is next to the soldier and before the artisan and merchant, in the four classes into which the people are divided, enjoys no small consideration, and where agriculture is protected by law from the inroads of wild vegetation, even to the lopping of overshadowing branches and the cutting down of hedgerow timber, the lord of the manor should be left practically without control in his dealings with his people. The land tax, or rather the yearly rent paid by the tenant, is usually assessed at 40% of the produce, but there is no principle clearly defining it, and frequently the landowner and the cultivator divide the proceeds of the harvest in equal shapes. Rice land is divided into three classes, and according to these classes, it is computed that one tan, 1,800 square feet, of the best land should yield to the owner a revenue of five bags of rice per annum. Each of these bags holds four to. A to is rather less than half an imperial bushel, and is worth at present, 1868, three rios, or about 16 shillings. The land of the middle class should yield a revenue of three or four bags. The rent is paid either in rice or in money, according to the actual price of the grain, which varies considerably. It is due in the 11th month of the year, when the crops have all been gathered and their market value fixed. The rent of land-bearing crops other than rice, such as cotton, beans, roots, and so forth, is payable in money during the twelfth month. The choice of the nature of the crops to be grown appears to be left to the tenant. The Japanese landlord, when pressed by poverty, does not confine himself to the raising of his legitimate rents. He can always enforce from his needy tenantry the advancement of a year's rent, or the loan of so much money as may be required to meet his immediate necessities. Should the lord be just, the tenant is repaid by installments, with interest, extending over ten or twenty years. But it too often happens that unjust and merciless landlords do not repay such loans, but, on the contrary, press for further advances. Then it is that the farmers, dressed in their grass raincoats and carrying sickles and bamboo poles in their hands, assemble before the gate of their lord's palace at the capital, and represent their grievances, imploring the intercession of their retainers, and even of the womankind who may chance to go forth. Sometimes they pay for their temerity by their lives, but at any rate, they have the satisfaction of bringing shame upon their persecutor in the eyes of his neighbors and of the populace. The official reports of recent travels in the interior of Japan have fully provided the hard lot with which the peasantry had to put up during the government of the tycoons, and especially under the Hatamotos, the created nobility of the dynasty. In one province where the village mayors appear to have seconded the extortions of their lord, they have had to flee before an exasperated population, who, taking advantage of the revolution, 
laid waste, and pillaged their houses, loudly praying for a new and just assessment of the land, while, throughout the country, the farmers have hailed with acclamations the resumption of the sovereign power by the Mikado, and the abolition of the petty nobility who exalted themselves upon the misery of their dependents. Warming themselves in the sunshine of the court at Yedo, the Hatamotos waxed fat and held high revel, and little cared they who groaned or who starved. Money must be found, and it was found. It is necessary here to add a word respecting the position of the village mayors, who play so important a part in the tale. The peasants of Japan are ruled by three classes of officials, the Nanushi, or mayor, the Kumigashira, or chiefs of companies, and the Hiyakushodai, or farmers' representatives. The village, which is governed by the Nanushi, or mayor, is divided into companies, which, consisting of five families each, are directed by a Kumigashira. These companies, again, are subdivided into groups of five men each, who choose one of their number to represent them in case of their having any petition to present, or any affairs to settle with their superiors. This functionary is the Hiyakushodai. The mayor, the chief of the company, and the representative keep registers of the families and people under their control, and are responsible for their good and orderly behavior. They pay taxes like the other farmers, but receive a salary, the amount of which depends upon the size and wealth of the village. 5% of the yearly land tax forms the salary of the mayor, and the other officials each receive 5% of the tax paid by the little bodies over which they respectively rule. The average amount of land for one family to cultivate is about one cho, or 9,000 square yards. But there are farmers who have inherited as much as five or even six cho from their ancestors. There is also a class of farmers called, from their poverty, water-drinking farmers, who have no land of their own, but hire that of those who have more than they can keep in their own hands. The rent so paid varies, but the good rice land will bring in as higher rent as from one pound eighteen shillings to two pounds six shillings per tan, one thousand eight hundred square feet. Farm laborers are paid from six or seven rios a year to as much as thirty rios, the rio being worth about five shillings four pennies. Besides this, they are clothed and fed, not daintily indeed, but amply. The rice which they cultivate is to them an almost unknown luxury. Millet is their staple food, and on high days and holidays, they receive messes of barley or buckwheat. Where the mulberry tree is grown and the silkworm is educated, there the laborer receives the highest wage. The rice crop on good land should yield twelve and a half fold, and on ordinary land from six to seven fold only. Ordinary arable land is only half as valuable as rice land, which cannot be purchased for less than 40 rios per tan of 1,800 square feet. Common hill or woodland is cheaper again than arable land, but orchards and groves of the Paulonia are worth from 50 to 60 rios per tan. With regard to the punishment of crucifixion, by which Sogoro was put to death, it is inflicted for the following offenses. Parricide, including the murder or striking of parents, uncles, aunts, elder brothers, masters, or teachers, coining counterfeit money, and passing the barriers of the tycoon's territory without a permit. The criminal is attached to an upright post with two crossbars, to which his arms and feet are fastened by ropes. He is then transfixed with spears by men belonging to the Eta or Pariah class. I once passed the execution ground near Yedo, when a body was attached to the cross. The dead man had murdered his employer, 
and having been condemned to death by crucifixion, had died in prison before the sentence could be carried out. He was accordingly packed in a squatting position, in a huge red earthenware jar, which having been tightly filled up with salt, was hermetically sealed. On the anniversary of the commission of the crime, the jar was carried down to the execution ground and broken, and the body was taken out and tied to the cross. The joints of the knees and arms having been cut, to allow of the extension of the stiffened and shrunken limbs. It was then transfixed with spears and allowed to remain exposed for three days. An open grave, the upturned soil of which seemed almost entirely composed of dead men's remains, waited to receive the dishonored corpse, over which three or four etas, squalid and degraded beings, were mounting guard, smoking their pipes by a scanty charcoal fire and bandying obscene jests. It was a hideous and ghastly warning, had any cared to read the lesson. But the passers-by on the high road took little or no notice of the sight, and a group of chubby and happy children were playing not ten yards from the dead body, as if no stranger uncanny thing were near them. How true is the principle laid down by Confucius, that the benevolence of princes is reflected in their country, while their wickedness causes sedition and confusion. In the province of Shimosa, and the district of Soma, Hotakaga no Kami was lord of the castle of Sakura, and chief of a family which had for generations produced famous warriors. When Kaga no Kami, who had served the Goroju, the cabinet of the shogun, died at the castle of Sakura, his eldest son Kotsuke no Suke Masanobu inherited his estates and honors, and was appointed to a seat in the Gorojiu. But he was a different man from the lords who had preceded him. He treated the farmers and peasants unjustly imposing additional and grievous taxes, so that the tenants on his estates were driven to the last extremity of poverty. And although year after year and month after month they prayed for mercy, and remonstrated against this injustice, no heed was paid to them, and the people throughout the village were reduced to the utmost distress. Accordingly, the chief of the 136 villages, producing a total revenue of 40,000 kokus of rice, assembled together in council and determined unanimously to present a petition to the government, sealed with their seals, stating that their repeated remonstrances had been taken no notice of by their local authorities. Then they assembled in numbers before the house of one of the councillors of their lord, named Ikeura Kazuye, in order to show the petition to him first, but even then no notice was taken of them. So they returned home and resolved, after consulting together, to proceed to their lord's yashiki, or palace, at Yedo, on the seventh day of the tenth month. It was determined with one accord that 143 village chiefs should go to Yedo, and the chief of the village of Iwahashi, one Sagoro, a man 48 years of age, distinguished for his ability and judgment, ruling a district which produced a thousand kokus, stepped forward and said, This is by no means an easy matter, my masters. It certainly is of great importance that we should forward our complaint to our lord's palace at Yedo. But what are your plans? Have you any fixed intentions? It is indeed a most important matter, rejoined the others. But they had nothing further to say. Then Sogoro went on to say, We have appealed to the public office of our province, but without avail. We have petitioned the prince's councillors, also in vain. I know that all that remains for us is to lay our case before our lord's palace at Yedo, and if we go there, it is equally certain that we shall not be listened to. On the contrary, we shall be cast into prison. If we are not attended to here in our own province, 
how much less would the officials at Yedo care for us? We might hand our petition into the litter of one of the Gorojiu in the public streets. But even in that case, as our lord is a member of the Gorojiu, none of his peers would care to examine into the rights and wrongs of our complaint, for fear of offending him. And the man who presented the petition in so desperate a manner would lose his life on a bootless errand. If you have made up your minds to this, and are determined at all hazards to start, then go to Yedo by all means, and bid a long farewell to parents, children's wives and relations. This is my opinion. The others all agreeing with what Sogoro said, they determined that, come what might, they would go to Yedo, and they settled to assemble at the village of Punabashi on the 13th day of the 11th month. On the appointed day, all the village officers met at the place agreed upon, Sogoro, the chief of the village of Iwahashi alone being missing. And as on the following day, Sogoro had not yet arrived, they deputed one of their number, named Rokurobe, to inquire the reason. Rokurobe arrived at Sogoro's house towards four in the afternoon and found him warming himself quietly over his charcoal brazier, as if nothing were the matter. The messenger, seeing this, said rather testily, The chiefs of the villages are all assembled at Punabashi according to covenant, and as you, Master Sogoro, have not arrived, I have come to inquire whether it is sickness or some other cause that prevents you. Indeed, replied Sogoro. I am sorry that you should have had so much trouble. My intention was to have set out yesterday, but I was taken with the colic, with which I am often troubled, and as you may see, I am taking care of myself, so for a day or two I shall not be able to start. Pray be so good as to let the others know this. Rokurobe, seeing that there was no help for it, went back to the village of Punabashi and communicated to the others what had occurred. They were all indignant at what they looked upon as the cowardly defection of a man who had spoken so fairly, but resolved that the conduct of one man should not influence the rest, and talked themselves into the belief that the affair which they had in hand would be easily put through. So they agreed with one accord to start and present the petition, and having arrived at Yedo, put up in the street called Bakurocho. But although they tried to forward their complaint to the various officers of their lord, no one would listen to them. The doors were all shut in their faces, and they had to go back to their inn, crestfallen and without success. On the following day, being the 18th of the month, they all met together in a tea house in an avenue, in front of a shrine of Kwanonsama, and having held a consultation, they determined that, as they could hit upon no good expedient, they would again send for Sogoro to see whether he could devise no plan. Accordingly, on the 19th, Rokurobe and Wanjiu Yemon started for the village of Iwahashi at noon and arrived the same evening. Now the village chief Sogoro, who had made up his mind that the presentation of this memorial was not a matter to be lightly treated, summoned his wife and children and his relations and said to them, I am about to undertake a journey to Yedo for the following reasons. Our present lord of the soil has increased the land tax, in rice and the other imposts, more than tenfold, so that pen and paper would fail to convey an idea of the poverty to which the people are reduced, and the peasants are undergoing tortures of hell upon earth. Seeing this, the chiefs of the various villages have presented petitions, but with what result is doubtful. My earnest desire, therefore, is to devise some means of escape from this cruel persecution. If my ambitious scheme does not succeed, then shall I return home no more, and even should I gain my end, it is hard to say how I may be treated by those in power. Let us drink a cup of wine together, for it may be that you shall see my face no more. 
I give my life to allay the misery of the people of this estate. If I die, mourn not over my fate, weep not for me. Having spoken thus, he addressed his wife and his four children, instructing them carefully as to what he desired to be done after his death, and minutely stating every wish of his heart. Then having drunk a parting cup with them, he cheerfully took leave of all present, and went to a tea-house in the neighboring village of Punabashi, where the two messengers, Rokurobe and Jiuyemon, were anxiously awaiting his arrival, in order that they might recount to him all that had taken place at Yedo. In short, said they, it appears to us that we have failed completely, and we have come to meet you in order to hear what you propose. If you have any plan to suggest, we would fain be made acquainted with it. We have tried the officers of the district, replied Sogoro, and we have tried my lord's palace at Yedo. However often we might assemble before my lord's gate, no heed would be given to us. There is nothing left for us but to appeal to the shogun. So they sat talking over their plans until the night was far advanced, and then they went to rest. The winter night was long, but when the cawing of the crows was about to announce the morning, the three friends started on their journey for the tea house at Asakusa, at which, upon their arrival, they found the other village elders already assembled. Welcome, Master Sogoro, said they. How is it that you have come so late? We have petitioned all the officers to no purpose, and we have broken our bones in vain. We are at our wits' end, and can think of no other scheme. If there is any plan which seems so good to you, we pray you to act upon it. Sirs, replied Sogoro, speaking very quietly, although we have met with no better success here than in our own place, there is no use in grieving. In a day or two, the Goroji will be going to the castle. You must wait for this opportunity, and following one of the litters, thrust in our memorial. This is my opinion. What think you of it, my masters? One and all, the assembled elders were agreed as to the excellence of this advice, and having decided to act upon it, they returned to their inn. Then Sogoro held a secret consultation with Jiuyemon, Hanzo, Rokurobe, Chinzo, and Kinshiro, five of the elders, and with their assistance, drew up the memorial, and having heard that on the 26th of the month, when the Gorojiu should go to the castle, Kuze Yamato no Kami would proceed to a palace under the western enclosure of the castle, they kept watch in a place hard by. As soon as they saw the litter of the Gorojiu approach, they drew near to it, and having humbly stated their grievances, handed in the petition, and as it was accepted, the six elders were greatly elated, and doubted not that their heart's desire would be attained. So they went off to a tea house at Ryogoku, and Jiuyemon said, We may congratulate ourselves on our success. We have handed in our petition to the Gorojiu, and now we may set our minds at rest. Before many days have passed, we shall hear good news from the rulers. To Master Sogoro is due great praise for his exertions. Sogoro, stepping forward, answered, Although we have presented our memorial to the Gorojiu, the matter will not be so quickly decided. It is therefore useless that so many of us should remain here. Let eleven men stay with me, and let the rest return home to their several villages. If we who remain are accused of conspiracy and beheaded, let the others agree to reclaim and bury our corpses. As for the expenses which we shall incur until our suit is concluded, let that be according to our original covenant. For the sake of the 136 villages, we will lay down our lives, if needs must, and submit to the disgrace of having our heads exposed as those of common malefactors. Then they had a parting feast together, and after a sad leave-taking, the main body of the elders went home to their own country, while the others, 
wending their way to their quarters, waited patiently to be summoned to the Supreme Court. On the second day of the twelfth month, Sogoro, having received a summons from the residence of the Goroji Okuze Yamato no Kami, proceeded to obey it and was ushered to the porch of the house, where two counselors, named Aiji Magidayu and Yamajiori, met him and said, Some days since you have had the audacity to thrust a memorial into the litter of our Lord Yamato no Kami. By an extraordinary exercise of clemency, he is willing to pardon this heinous offense. But should you ever again endeavor to force your petitions upon him, you will be held guilty of riotous conduct. And with this, they gave back the memorial. I humbly admit the justice of his lordship's censure. But, oh, my lords, this is no hasty or ill-considered action. Year after year, affliction upon affliction has been heaped upon us, until at last the people are without even the necessaries of life. And we, seeing no end to the evil, have humbly presented this petition. I pray your lordships of your great mercy to consider our case, and deign to receive our memorial. Vouchsafe to take some measures that the people may live, and our gratitude for your great kindness will know no bounds. Your request is a just one, replied the two counselors after hearing what he said, but your memorial cannot be received, so you must even take it back. With this, they gave back the document and wrote down the names of Sogoro and six of the elders who had accompanied him. There was no help for it. They must take back their petition and return to their inn. The seven men, dispirited and sorrowful, sat with folded arms considering what was best to be done, what plan should be devised, until at last, when they were at their wit's end, Sugoro said in a whisper, So our petition, which we gave in after so much pain, has been returned after all. With what face can we return to our villages after such a disgrace? I, for one, do not propose to waste my labor for nothing. Accordingly, I shall bide my time until some day, when the shogun shall go forth from the castle, and, lying in wait by the roadside, I shall make known our grievances to him, who is lord over our lord. This is our last chance. The others all applauded the speech, and having with one accord hardened their hearts, waited for their opportunity. End of section 25